And everyone downstairs said? Amen. Everyone upstairs said? Amen. And everyone at home said? Amen. We think we heard you. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, I hope you're all doing well. Um, this, is, this is another week in our We series. And we've been walking through um, the Bible and looking at different descriptions of church, what it means to be church. And each week, um, Ben and I have been trying to present to you a different picture of church. And our hope is that as we present a picture, we present a picture to you that is so, so appealing, so, so, so enthralling, so beautiful, so pristine, so lovely, that, 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 you, that you have a, a, a sense that you're called like God has said we are, out of the world, away from the world's individualism, away from the world's consumerism, away from the world's sense of nationalism, and anything that is a, an affiliation to anything else other than church, as God has designed it to be. And, and I don't know how many of you have got expensive rocks on your finger, um, but, but, uh, or who, who may be familiar with looking at things like diamonds, but you understand that when you look at something like a diamond, a diamond has many different facets, many different faces. And sometimes you, you can turn it one way and you see another thing, and you turn it another way and you see another thing. And sometimes if you catch it at the right, in the right light, you can see maybe, maybe two things at the same time. And so in a, in a way in which it, it, Ben touched on family and temple this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about the temple and the bride. And so each of these things is a different facet, a different picture, a different image, a different aspect of what it means to be church. And so today, as I said, our focus is the temple and the bride, but I'm going to speak to you a lot about what it means to be the bride of Christ. Now, the design for Christian marriage originates in the book of Genesis. And, and so in the beginning, in Genesis 1:26, the scripture says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And, and I want you to, to focus on those two words that are, that are in uppercase. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God is speaking of God as, as plurality, as father, as son, as spirit, as one. And so there's an intimacy that begins right in the beginning. God is speaking of the intimacy that he is and in making humankind in God's image, God wants the intimacy that he has, Father, Son, Spirit, that oneness, that unity, that closeness, that proximity, to be something that we experience on earth. And so it comes a little later in Genesis 1, 27. It says, so God creates man in his own image. I want you to remember that God doesn't look like a human being in this sense. He doesn't look like us. He doesn't look like, just like you do or like, or like you do or like I do. God is spirit, the scripture says. And the scripture says that God desires those who are spiritual to worship him in spirit and in truth. So remembering that the image of God is a, a spiritual image. God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And so you see how God is, is, has mirrored something, has done something on earth like it is in heaven. There is this, this, this unity, this, this, tr this, this trinity of God. And somehow God has, has created male and female. And it goes a little further down in Genesis 2.7, and God forms man of the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living being. And I imagine that that's an act of extreme intimacy, that God scoops maybe down however he does it with, with whatever God's hands look like, and he forms man out of the dust of the ground. And, and, and you realize that our body, the reason it says body in parenthesis is because everything that's in our body is found in the ground. 
But into, the, into what God forms, takes from the ground, he breathes into, into this, this, this body, spirit, and man becomes a living being. And you see, so there is the three things that we are, body, soul, and spirit, as it was in the beginning. Again, intimacy. And then you have this remarkable story of Adam naming the animals. In Genesis 2.20, it says, Adam gives name to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. And just imagine that whatever it looked like, again, there's this intimate experience of God and Adam naming animals, and maybe God's bringing something to Adam and putting it in front of him and saying, go on, come up with something creative. And Adam's like, well, cow. God's like, that's good. Aardvark. Okay. Ant. There were no mosquitoes in the Garden of Eden, I'm sure, and no wasps. I don't know where they came from, but they're just some demonic manifestation. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So I wonder whether this experience of intimacy with God is God's with Adam, and Adam's looking at the animals, and he's naming them. But somewhere he's, he's waiting for something that looks a little bit like him, and he doesn't see anything that looks a little bit like him. And so the Lord God, verse 21, causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And as he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And I want you to get the sense, if you ever do a Hebrew word search on ribs, you'll find that the word rib isn't referring to a bone. The word rib is referring to the side of something. And through the whole of the New Testament, anytime it's talking about the word that is used here for rib, it's talking about the side. Sometimes it's the side of the tabernacle, sometimes it's the side of the altar or the temple or just the side of a, of a hill. And so God somehow, because we have the same men, we have the same number of ribs as ladies, don't we? So God's not taking a bone out, he's taking a chunk out of Adam's side. And from the side, it says, he, he, he makes woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam says, ah, this is glorious to use. I, keep, I can't, I can't, Bart Simpson, it's an Icarumba moment. It's, wow, look at this. She's great. And I think he recognizes in that moment that finally, there's a mate. Finally, there's someone like him. Now, this is, this is, oh, this is, Adam's like but now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, therefore, you think of this therefore, it's a return to the, the oneness. Woman comes out of man, and so therefore, because woman came out of man, God ordains this thing that becomes the foundation of Christian marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And so you have here the first imagery of a bride and a bridegroom. But that intimacy, of course, is broken. Sin breaks the intimacy, and sin mars the intimacy between God, who once walked with Adam and Eve in the, in the cool of the garden, God who formed Adam intimately and lovingly from the dust of the earth and breathes his spirit into him. Sin breaks that intimacy, but sin also breaks the intimacy between Adam and Eve. But God doesn't settle with that because through the whole of human history, God has been working out a plan of redemption. God's been working out a plan to return to intimacy, to return to an intimacy that is vertical intimacy, horizontal intimacy. And that's seen through the whole of the history of the um, Old Testament and the New Testament. And so you know the word tabernacle that, that means to dwell with, to to, to be present with, to live in, in a place, to habitate, to habitate. God starts off by telling Moses to build something according to the pattern that you sh was shown on the mountain. Moses sees a spiritual 
saying he sees into the heavenly realm and he builds something according to the pattern that God showed him while he was with God on the mountain. And when God has, when Moses has finished the building in Exodus 40, verse 34, it says, then the cloud covers the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of God fills the tabernacle. What you have there is the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. God has worked to bring about intimacy and proximity and closeness. But one aspect of God's intimacy, love, desire for intimacy is that God is also jealous. And you think of marriage and you think of how you want your husband and your wife just for you and not to share them with anyone else. God is intensely jealous for the attention, for the love, for the focus, for everything from his people. If you want to read more about it, I'm not going to touch on it today, but go look at Ezekiel. Just make a note. Go read through Ezekiel 16 because the language there is intense about how, how jealous God was and is for the love of his people. And then you move further on in the history of Israel from the tabernacle to the temple, and the same thing happens there again. David desires to build a, a, a habitation for God, but it's actually Solomon that builds the temple. And again, when, when the temple is finished, the glory of the Lord fills the temple, Second Chronicles 7 says. And Stephen, who's, who's one, of the, um, uh, uh, one of the earliest deacons, he's chosen to, to wait on tables, but it seems that when they chose people to do what seems like a menial task, they chose people full of wisdom and full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen preaches a sermon to his accusers in the book of Acts, in Acts 7, that covers an entire chapter, and it actually gets him stoned. But somewhere in the middle of that chapter, in Acts 7, 44 to 50, he summarizes what I've just been talking about. It says there that our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. Look at this, verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And so moving from the tabernacle to the temple, to the New Testament, Jesus, one of the names for Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Jesus begins to speak in John 2:19 about a temple, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And of course, they're not talking about the temple of Solomon because the temple of Solomon has been destroyed. They're talking about a temple rebuilt after the exile, and as far as I can see, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but the presence of God never, according to the scripture, inhabited. The presence of God fills the tabernacle in the wilderness, fills the temple built by Solomon, never fills the rebuilt temple, but Jesus begins to speak about another kind of temple, another kind of tabernacle, another kind of habitation for God, for the Spirit of God. And he says, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So you've moved from the tabernacle and God 
habitation in the tabernacle to the temple and then to Jesus and the presence of God and the fullness of God in Jesus, demonstrating every step of the way, God going out of his way to prove that he wants intimacy with humanity, to dwell in their midst, in a tabernacle, in a temple, in Christ Jesus himself. And this is the amazing thing, that whilst Jesus sleeps, the sleep of death, just like Adam slept, God from Jesus seems to take a substance that is his body, that becomes the church. And you see, in the same way as God took aside a rib from Adam and presented the, 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 the woman that he formed from the side, the rib of Adam, to, to, to Adam, and Adam's like, oh God, this is glorious, this is your work. In the same way that, that from the body of Jesus is taken the church, and just as Eve was presented to Adam in the end of human history, the church taken from the body of Christ is going to be presented to Jesus. The church is the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. But the body is also described in another way, which is the temple. In Ephesians 2, 21 to 22, it says that it's a holy temple in the Lord whom we are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So look at this. The tabernacle, the temple, Jesus, and the dwelling place of God now becomes what? The church. But not a temple made with bricks, but a temple made with living stones. Not a, not a physical house, but a spiritual house. First Peter 2 verses 4 to 5 tells us. But this temple is also the bride that Ephesians tells us in verses 5, 25 to 32, that Jesus loves and gives himself for, that he might nourish her and cherish her and cleanse her and sanctify her and present her to himself, holy and without blemish. Look at that language that Jesus gives himself for the church, that when the church is eventually presented to him, she's without spot, without blemish, perfect, pure, holy. That's speaking of something in the future. That's speaking of something at the other end of human history. And just as human history began with a marriage, human history ends with a marriage. In Revelation 21, one chapter from the end of the Bible, verses 1 to 4. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city. And I want you to get this, that we're speaking about, about John seeing spiritually. John seeing in the spirit world, in the spirit realm, something that, it, that he does his best through the whole of the book of Revelation to describe it. He's often using the word, it was, it was like something, it was like something, it was like something, it was like something. What he's trying to do is, like, I saw something, and the best thing I can use to describe it is a, is a this, because you know what this is, but you didn't see that. So if I tell you about this, you might get a sense of what it was that I saw. And he says, I, I see the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What's he seeing? What's he seeing is John seeing the presentation of the church as the pure, spotless, blood-washed, cleansed with water, bride, prepared 
for this moment, which is the wedding to the bridegroom. As a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard the loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And this is a word that we need to hear every day. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain. All the former things have passed away. See, the new Jerusalem is not a physical structure. It's a spiritual one. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a physical building. It's a spiritual building. The description in verses 11 to 22 of Revelation 21, if you go and read it, is, is about its likeness. It speaks of having how, it's, how it looks like it's, got, it's made of precious gems and precious stones and pearls and, and pure transparent gold. Whatever pure transparent gold is, I've never seen that. But gold that's so pure and so that there's no impurities in it, that it's almost like glass and it's almost like crystal, things that have been refined and purified and cleansed of every impurity, things tested as if it were by fire. And interestingly, and this isn't one of the texts that I put up, but I just wanted to, to reference it. In, in 1 Corinthians, um, I thought I put a note in, and I did, and it's a tiny one. There we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, verse 9, it says, We are God's follow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, this is Paul writing, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. This is a word to us. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day. What day are they talking about? The day of judgment? The day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he is built on endures, he will receive a reward. If, any reward. if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Now, this is really important here, because it's speaking of things that will endure until the day of Christ's return. It's speaking of things that will endure in the day of Christ's return, that when Jesus returns to judge all things, that there will be things that will endure through that judgment, through the fire, through the testing. When you think of precious stones, where are precious stones formed in the earth? Of years of, of pressing and squishing and, and molding and pressure, they come out of that. And that gold, we've been speaking about the gold that's a level of purity that it is transparent. That means that somehow it's been heated up and the impurities have raised to the top and someone's skimmed them off and you've done it again and again and again until that gold is so pure that there's no, there's no imperfection in it. And do you realize that the Bible is telling us that this is what the church will look like, must look like, in order to be ready for the return of Jesus, in order to be ready for the wedding that we are going to be part of with the bridegroom who is Christ. And, and, and Revelation 19, 6 to 8 says something that is essential. It tells us how we can get ready for this wedding. Now, how many of you have been brides in this room? Uh, how many of you are about to be brides in this room? Just be careful not to look in some direction. Did you, did you, did you, how long did you take to get ready? Did you take more time to get ready than you normally did? 
Did you spend time picking out a wedding dress? Did you have a makeover or makeup that took longer than whatever you normally do to go to work in the morning? Did you have special shoes? Did you have your nails done? Did you have all sorts of fascinating things done like that? I know that I was a part of a wedding that that process was going on. And, and so when your bride is presented to you, she's this beautiful, incredible wife you've ever seen. This is the same thing. Think of that process of getting ready. Think of when Jesus says in the scripture, um, he tells a story of, of 10 virgins yeah, who each have lamps. All, all of them have lamps, and, 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 and five of them get the oil ready for the lamp, and the other five don't. And it says that then the bridegroom delays, and he doesn't come. And it says that while he's delaying, they slumber. And then suddenly a shout goes up, the bridegroom's here, and the ones with the oil trim their lamps, which must mean light in it. And, and then the others without the oil are like, here, lend us some of your oil. And the others are like, no, because if we give you some, there won't be enough for us. And so you should have got your oil before. But what actually happens is the ones with the lit lamps go to the wedding. And the ones without the lit lamps are going around and they're searching for oil. And while they're searching for oil, what happens? They miss the wedding. They miss the wedding. So the Bible is telling us again and again of this process of preparation of readiness for the, for, the, for, the, for the wedding of the bride to the bridegroom. And in Revelation 9, verses 6 to 8, And I heard, as it were, the sound of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, and I don't know what that sounded like, it's not louder than this, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. His wife has made herself ready. One more time, because it's important. His wife has made herself ready. With what? To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, bright, clean and bright, for the fine linen is what? The righteous acts of the saints. Righteous acts are how the saints prepare for the wedding. Christianity isn't about that I once walked down an aisle and gave my life to the Lord and never did one thing. After that. Because if we're saved because of that moment, it's as if through fire by the skin of our teeth. The scripture is saying it's more than that. That there's a wedding coming, and my brothers and sisters, we've got to get ready for the wedding. We don't want to be found naked at the wedding. We don't want to be found wearing the wrong clothes. We want to be found wearing the right clothes for the wedding. And this isn't a call just to us individually, it's the call to the whole church. To every one of us that there's a wedding coming means looking forward to things that are ahead of us. The return of Jesus and living every day like Jesus is actually coming again. Let me say some things to you about what righteous acts might be as I see it. I think a righteous act is treasure stored in heaven. The scripture says where your, where your treasure is, there your heart is. That if we're storing things in heaven that maybe somehow a heart is there also things that are going to endure. I think a righteous act is something done unto God in the secret place. You know, when Jesus says, I think it's Matthew 6 or so, that, that when you pray, don't parade yourself and shout it out loud in front of other people because it says, if you do it unto men, you have your reward from men. But if you do it unto God in the secret place, who sees in the secret place and reward you openly, then you somehow you're doing something just doing this for you, God. I'm going to pray for people and no one's going to know I'm praying for them. I'm going to pray for things and no one else is going to know I'm praying for those things. But you're going to see it and you might reward me openly. But even if you don't reward me openly here, somehow I'm, my heart is in heaven and I want some things there. 
It says, when you do your charitable giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I don't know how that's possible. But it means that we don't parade it. We don't announce it. We don't take out whole pages in the, in the newspaper about it. We don't publish ads about it. We don't do political ads about it, about how righteous we are and how much good we're doing. We do it unto God in the secret place. And God who sees in secret will reward us. How? Openly. It's things, righteous acts are things done to the least of humanity, to the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, those in prison. Think of that parable Jesus tells in Matthew 25, 44 to 45, when, when at the end of the age, he separates everybody and he puts some on his left hand, the goats like goats, and some on his right hand, the sheep. And to these, he says, you didn't do anything that mattered. But to these, he said, you did. And they turn around and say, we, what did we do? He says, when I was hungry, you clothed me. When I was naked, you get out When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to see me. And you didn't brag about it. No one else knew you were doing it. You just did it. But I saw it, and it was unto me. Another righteous act, I think, is something done in love. The scripture in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, which is often read at weddings, so that if I have every gift known to man, if I can speak in tongues, if I can prophesy, if I can see things that no one else sees, but I have no love, I'm just a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. It says, if I give everything I have away to the poor, but don't have love, it's pointless. And then it goes even further, it says, if I give my body to the flames to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. It's astonishing. But I think that what we are meant to be arrayed with, what we're meant to be dressed with at the end of the age, the church, as righteous acts, things that we've stored up in heaven, things that we've done unto God in the secret place, things that we've done to the least of humanity, things done in love. Things, therefore, that might endure through the testing and not be burnt by fire. So, I got four points in, in closing. Um, in fact, let me say something else at this point. I want to say something. Um, righteous acts are something that the saints need to do to prepare themselves for the return of Jesus, right? And I hope you get that, that it's about doing good things all through our life, every day, and encouraging one another to do that. But the scripture also says that righteousness exalts a nation. Ever, anyone ever heard that? Righteousness exalts a nation. Who has ever heard that? Just show me a... Right, okay. Some of you have got to go Google some stuff. A nation is exalted by righteousness, but the rest of the scripture says sin is a reproach to any people. So it seems as if when there is a lot of righteousness in a land, that nation is exalted by it. That nation is lifted up. That nation is raised up. But when the nation is riddled with sin, that nation is instead brought down. So what if it were this, that not only are we meant to be doing righteous acts to be the bride prepared to see the return of Christ, but we're meant to be doing righteous acts today that our nation has some in the land. Because if the church aren't doing righteous acts, then, then how are we salt? How are we light? If a nation is exalt, not exalted by righteousness, then what are we dealing with? A nation that is instead characterized by its sinfulness. And so the things we do, the things we stand for, absolutely matter. And I'm going to say some things to you. I think that if, if winning an election matters more than virtue and truth 
and honesty and integrity and character. A nation isn't exalted by righteousness, is it? If we care more about that these hands have a right to hold a gun or to not hold a gun or shouldn't hold as many guns as they held, but no one's telling me that these hands should be used to love and to heal and to embrace. Legislate for that then. If we criticize peaceful protest instead of passionately going more after the thing that the protest is because and fixing it and finding the legitimate root cause, then a nation isn't exhorted by righteousness. If I matter more to me than you do, then a nation isn't exhorted by righteousness. If, he, if hatred is okay, if hypocrisy is okay, lying, cheating, stealing, sexual immorality is okay, and we don't say something about it, and we don't stand up to it, and we don't live right, then the nation is not exalted by righteousness. And if a nation is not exalted by righteousness, I'm afraid to say it's on its way down. And the salt and the light to stop the decline is the church. It's not the political commentators, not the politicians who call themselves light, and I alone can save a country, and my party alone can save the country. The only one who can save, his name is Jesus Christ. He alone is light. He alone is truth. He alone is love. And if we aren't standing up and declaring that, if we aren't adorning ourselves with acts of righteousness to endure unto the day that the bride and the bridegroom are, are, are united in marriage, but acts that save our country, then the country is going down. So we should pray more. God, have mercy on this country. God, have mercy on us. God, don't judge us in, in wrath, but judge us, please, with mercy. And forgive us, because we've not lived like we should live. And we've seen things and we've been silent. And we've not stood up for the things that we should stand up for. Righteousness exalts a nation. This is what it means to be the bride of Christ. Firstly, the good news. Jesus is coming. Live like Jesus is coming. Heaven is real, people. Heaven is real. And know that amidst the current day, amidst the day when the day really is bad. <laughs> when it's horrible, Jesus is coming. Remind one another, he's coming. He's coming again when we don't know. Now or now. We've got to live in that imminence. A second thing, be committed to him. Be faithful, be loyal, be pure like the bride with her eyes on the bridegroom. Live alone for him. Three, urge one another to do righteous acts, good works. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Will you read this with me? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day, uppercase day, approaching. What's that saying? That the day's closer today than it was yesterday. What is the day when every one of us will stand before Christ and be judged for the things that we've done? We want things that endure. We want treasure stored up in heaven. And so the reason we gather 
even though we've missed COVID, the reason that we've, you're scattered, and this is as full as I've seen it in a few weeks, but the reason that we're here and the reason that we're watching at home and the reason that we meet in gatherings is to encourage one another and say, come on, good works. Come on, good works, do good works, do good works, do good works, keep doing good works. Don't quit doing good works because good works matter because there's a wedding coming that you've got to prepare for. And good works matter because righteousness, even yours, exalts a nation. And the fourth thing, be ready. Don't live like Jesus could not come now or now or now living on a day and thinking that I got stuff that I know is wrong in my life but I'll fix it down the line later never maybe I've got relationships I've got to repair and I'll, I'll get to it I've got stuff that I know is wrong but I'll get to it anything that amounts to preparation that you know you've got to get in order before the return of Christ do it now. Because then we're like those five young ladies who had the oil in their lamp. They weren't saying that I'll go get it when the heavens break. And I'm running around scrambling to find oil or whatever that actually looks like. And you miss, don't miss the wedding. Don't miss the wedding and say to one another, don't miss the wedding. Don't leave anything for another moment. So summarizing those, Jesus is going to return. Be committed to him faithful like a bride the bride the church is urge one another to do righteous acts good works and fourthly be ready be ready the bride i hope i've presented a little facet another facet of, of church a little bit of temple spiritual temple the new jerusalem the habitat habitation of god that is the church, that is the bride prepared for the marriage at the end of human history.